this is Ann Robertson, the pastor of the United Methodist Church of Westford in Westford, Massachusetts. This is the sermon from Memorial Day weekend, preached on May 28th, and the text comes from 2 Samuel in the 11th and 12th chapters. It's that sordid, terrible story of David and Bathsheba and the fate of Uriah the Hittite. Uh, Psalm 51 is the other text that's used quite a bit in the sermon. So if you're not familiar with that story, you might want to go to Second Samuel 11 and 12 and check it all out. One of the most scandalous stories in the Bible by one of the Bible's most famous people. I've called the sermon Sinning 101. Amen. Please remain standing for David's response. To Nathan and to what he had done, it says a gospel lesson. Technically, it's not the gospel. It comes from the book of Psalms, um, but I think the gospel is within all of scripture. Psalm 51, to the leader, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence, and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be brighter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you wouldn't be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. On this Memorial Day weekend, it seemed appropriate to lift up the wartime death of a biblical soldier, Uriah the Hittite. Most of the time, it's Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, that gets the attention. But Uriah also deserves to be remembered as an honorable soldier, loyal to both his fellow soldiers and the king who betrayed him to death. Uriah wasn't just your average private. Uriah was one of what the Bible calls the 30. 
who were a select group of seasoned warriors who comprised the elite forces of David's kingship. And yet, we know the story. While Uriah is out fighting David's battles, you know, once upon a time the king used to go, David himself used to go to battle. Now he's sort of farmed it out, other people are going, and he's staying home. And while he's home, he's become a peeping Tom, and he's lusting after Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. David is king, and ancient kings could pretty much do as they please. So David sends for Bathsheba and sleeps with her. She ends up pregnant, and David starts perhaps the most famous biblical cover-up. He brings Uriah home from the battle in the hopes that he'll go to his house and sleep with his wife and the child can be assumed to be his. But no such luck. Uriah will not indulge himself while his fellow soldiers are still risking their lives in battle. And he stays on the steps of the palace, refusing to go to his house. So David gets angry and sends him back into the field and tells the commander to put Uriah out in the front lines and then in the thick of battle to pull back and to leave him vulnerable so that he may be killed. That happens. And the most honorable soldier in all of the Bible is killed. And David then takes Bathsheba as his wife. It isn't a pretty thing for this king that's been chosen to bear an eternal promise from God. God took the kingship from Saul for much, much less. But David doesn't suffer Saul's fate. David has piled sin onto sin. He has broken just about all of the commandments and then some in this one ugly situation from beginning to end. But God stays with him. Why? It's hard to say, but I believe it's because David is truly and gut-wrenchingly sorry that David repents. I've titled this sermon, Sinning 101, Because I think that while the church is quite good at reciting a list of thou shalts and thou shalt nots, the church over time has not been quite so good at telling people what you do when you thou shalted when you should have thou shalt nodded. (laughs) You know, we know what we're supposed to do, but how are we to behave when we don't? when we fall short and we sin. In fact, in some Christian circles, they'll tell you that if you're sin, you're not a Christian at all. You've got to go back to the altar, you've got to be saved again. But we're not immune from sin as Christians. Just because we've declared our faith in Jesus Christ is not some sort of magical protection so that we'll never do anything wrong again. Well, praise the Lord for David. David The chosen one of God sins big time. More than that, David, the chosen one of God, sins big time and remains the chosen one of God. Jesus is called son of David, and he doesn't slap anybody around for saying that. He gladly takes that name. That's really good news for those of us whose lives, even after our professions of faith, have been less than perfect. 
In fact, I think it's the gospel. Of course, some go to the opposite extremes of what has been termed cheap grace, with the notion that you can just do anything you want because God will always forgive you. So just go out and live your life, doesn't matter, you get this sort of get out of hell free card from God and it's all taken care of. David shows us that sin is much more complicated than either of those extremes. Let's go back to the text for a minute. Because I believe that in the passage we read for this morning are some of the long-lost instructions for how God's children are to respond to sin in our own lives. At the beginning of chapter 12, David is breathing a sigh of relief. Things have gotten kind of tense there for a moment with Bathsheba pregnant and Uriah around, but it seems to be all smoothed over with nobody the wiser. But at the very end of the chapter, it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Maybe you've seen the t-shirt that claims, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. (laughs) Well, the Old Testament writers who knew God knew that if Yahweh ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And the bad news for David at the end of chapter 11 is that Yahweh ain't happy. And just like Mama, Yahweh's going to do something about it. In this case, Yahweh sends Nathan, the resident prophet in the court of King David. And Nathan goes to David very cleverly with a parable. You see, part of David's problem is because he's been blinded to his own sin. I suspect he knows it's wrong in a technical sense. But David has been a warrior for so long and involved for so long in a court where he could have what he pleased. It seems like a trivial matter to him. One more woman in the harem, one more warrior dead. It's more a matter of statistics than real wrong. It's just part of what you have to do to maintain a kingship. So Nathan brings in another perspective a perspective that takes David back before his days as king, back before the day that a brash young teenager stepped out onto the field to kill Goliath, back to a boy who used to risk his own life to protect sheep. Perhaps David had never really learned to love people, but David had learned how to love and care for the sheep as he cared for them in his father's house. Nathan's parable hits home, and David's outraged. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, says David. And you can feel the knife cut as Nathan turns it around and says, you are the man. Now David is bright. If this had been the disciples, you can imagine their response. But master, we haven't been near a sheep in years. When did we ever do such a thing? But David's not a simple fisherman. David's a king. He makes the connection between the real shepherd watching over real sheep and a king watching over his country in a nanosecond. And you can imagine his growing shame and horror as he hears God's condemnation and punishment through the words of Nathan. And David's response begins our instruction. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't justify it. 
David doesn't say, well, yes, God, but you have to understand my position. David doesn't say, I know I did some damage, but I live in such a violent society that I just didn't know what else to do. David doesn't say, you know, I was abused as a child and I couldn't help myself. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. That's it. No excuses, no extenuating circumstances, no plea bargains, just a plain, old-fashioned admission of responsibility and guilt. All those other things might have been true. But David knows there comes a time when you take responsibility for what you've done. And that, I think, is the first step for any Christian who sins. Confession and acceptance of responsibility. Might have been understandable from what's gone before. But we accept that we did it, it was wrong, and we bear responsibility. And before you put this in the back file because you haven't committed adultery or murder lately, let me remind you that those aren't the only sins that displease the Lord. I even tend to believe they're not the sins that displease the Lord most. We're all guilty at one time or another of displeasing the Lord. It's no accident that such an admission is also the first step in any 12-step program. Nothing gets solved until we're willing to admit that there's a problem. I have sinned against the Lord. We don't go anywhere until we can say those words. David not only admits his guilt and his sin, he's sorry and he repents. As I read the reading from Psalm 51 this morning, I was careful to read the inscription at the beginning of Psalm 51, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This psalm shows us a part of David's response to Nathan that's not recorded in Samuel. From his youth, David has always poured out his heart in song, and he does so here again. Psalm 51 is not just something to read. Psalm 51 is a lesson in what it means for the faithful to repent. Repentance is more than saying, Gee, sorry God, won't happen again. Repentance is agony. Repentance is being willing to stand before Yahweh, even when Yahweh ain't happy, and admit the whole nasty business. It isn't cowardly groveling, but an act of courage that stands before God as David does and says, I have sinned against you, God. You know what? You're justified in being angry, and I realize that I deserve whatever you're going to give me. But I still want to serve you if you're willing to show mercy and to forgive. And I'll need your help to be better in the future. All those things are there in Psalm 51. When we forget what it means to really repent, Psalm 51 sits in our Bible as sinning 101 to remind us. Now, these two steps are hard, acknowledging and confessing our sin and then truly repenting. But the last part is hardest of all. Nathan tells David that God has had mercy. Even though David himself decreed that the man who has done this deserves to die, God is not going to take David's life. Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. 
We're willing to handle that much. But somehow we often believe that forgiveness means being excused from any consequences of our sin. If that shopkeeper really forgives me for breaking her window, I won't have to pay for it. If God really forgives me for wasting half of my life in vain pursuits, the second half of my life will be as full of God's blessings as those who spent their entire lives serving God. But in this matter, the story of David comes to irritate us again. David is forgiven. God does not require David's life as strict justice would require. No trap door to hell opens up for David. God does not withdraw his spirit or his promises from David. David remains the king. David remains the apple of God's eye. David remains the ancestor of Jesus Christ. But David does have earthly consequences to deal with. The child he conceived with Bathsheba dies. David's own house is filled with infighting. And soon another son, Absalom, tries to take his throne and is finally killed. There's a lot of pain in David's life from here on out. And we see David's agony as he wrestles with God in prayer, praying for the life of his child. David was so upset over the illness of his child that his servants were afraid to tell him that the child had died, thinking he might commit suicide. But the child did die. It's not a minor consequence, and it hurts big time. But how does David respond? Does David curse God? Does David throw a tantrum and say, No fair, God, you were supposed to forgive me. I did everything right. I was really sorry. I confessed my sin and I repented. I shouldn't have to pay any consequences. No, David doesn't do any of those things. Verse 20 says, Then David rose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. David accepted the consequences. David accepted the sentence that God imposed, knowing that it was more lenient than what he deserved. Now, I'm not at all trying to say that everything bad that happens to us is punishment from God. I think that's a misreading of it that's not saying that children who die is always a punishment from God. Remember, in this, for the sake of this story, God is upfront with David about what his punishment is. David doesn't have to guess at that. God has told him plainly beforehand. David stood before the judge's bench and he heard the sentence. And if we think about it, we're often aware of which of our life's trials we've brought upon ourselves by things that we've done and the ways that we've lived and which things have been unfairly put on us by others. The story of David and Bathsheba wasn't included in scripture because it needed sex and violence to sell more copies. The story of David and Bathsheba was not included so we could condemn David and feel self-righteous ourselves. The story of David and Bathsheba is a warning that we too can fall into sin. And it's our instruction on how a child of God should respond to sin in our own lives. Acknowledge and confess the sin. Truly repent of the sin. Accept 
the consequences of that sin. You know, you get into drug dealing and you go to prison. That's part of it. God can forgive you for ruining people's lives through dealing drugs without having to get you out of prison and release you from those consequences. There are consequences for our sin. It's that simple and it's that hard. And so once again, the story of David and Bathsheba is irritating. We want it to be simple. A simple message that will condemn somebody else and let us go free. But it stubbornly refuses to play that role. Instead, the story stands as a sentinel at the gate of our judgment. When we want to say, sinner, you are going to hell. There sits David saying, I committed adultery and murder, and Jesus was still called the son of David. There is no greater story of grace, I don't think, in the entire Bible than the way that God deals with and forgives David and dwells with David throughout his life and the life of his descendants. When we want to excuse our own sin, there sits David saying, I have sinned against the Lord. When we invite others to join our faith by painting a wide, easy road, when we imply that all it takes is saying some magic words about Jesus being your Lord and Savior, and you'll never have to worry about sin or consequences ever again, there sits David, mourning the death of his child. As you consider the great truths of life and the great faith to which we're called, Keep David in your mind. See the shepherd boy turned king of Israel, the handsome young man who by the power of God kills a giant with a single stone. See the man after God's own heart who danced with all his might before the ark of the Lord. See the man chosen to found the line of God's own son who would be called by David's name. But see also the man who took any woman he wanted, and could murder one of his most loyal soldiers in cold blood. See the father, eyes bloodshot, laying in the dust without food to beg God for the life of his child. See the king whose throne is threatened from every side, even by his own son. See the humiliation of a man who says, I have sinned against the Lord. See the psalmist, see the king, see the sinner, See the soul in agony. See the soul set free to dance before the Lord. He is David. He is me. He is you. And God remains with us all. Amen. Thanks for subscribing to Spirit Walker Sermons. If you're ever in the area, stop in for worship at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 10 Church Street in Westford, Massachusetts. Love to have you stop by my website at www.annrobertson.com where you can also subscribe to a weekly devotion which you can receive either as an email or a podcast. I'd love to hear from you via email at ann at annrobertson.com. Thanks again for subscribing and I hope your week is filled with God's blessings.